Good morning. Uh, we are now returning back to the book of Luke. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. You'll find that on page 858 if you are utilizing a pew Bible. That is page 858. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it as it is read. Chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Our glorious Heavenly Father, as we now come to sit before your feet and to be taught by you, we ask that you would grab hold of our hearts even now, that you would illumine our minds and make it so that we would hear exactly what you would have us to hear that would cause us to grow in the image of our Lord, that would cause us to be equipped to go out into our spheres of influence and proclaim your greatness, proclaim your goodness and the gospel to all those we come across. We pray that our lives will reflect that which you are calling to in this text and that by the power of your spirit, you would make it so all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we were introduced to a man whom Jesus, when he first spoke of him, did so with these words. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This is the man of whom, as we saw last week, the prophet Isaiah said would come as the forerunner of Christ, who would come to be known as broadly asserting, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That was his mantra. It is the same man of whom the prophet Malachi in Malachi 3.1 said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And again, Malachi 4.6, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Luke sheds light on this Elijah figure I just spoke of in chapter 1, verse 17, writing, He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So here he is not speaking of Elijah, but of him who would come on the scene in the power and spirit of Elijah, that being John the Baptist. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear of a man being the greatest among men, one who is able to turn the hearts away from being self-centered and self-seeking to instead bring about a sense of love, peace, happiness, and unity in homes throughout the land, one who has been given the mantle of ushering in the Prince of Peace, the one who is asserted uh, to be loved, that is the Prince of Peace, I just could not fathom that he would be introduced in the way that he is introduced here. Instead, I would have expected a Charles Finney type figure. Charles Finney was a Presbyterian minister. Some called him a heretic who, towards the end of the Second Great Awakening, started a system aimed at getting folks to volitionally choose Christ. This so as an act of their will, apart from the work of the Spirit, done by having them come forward after hearing an extremely emotional appeal, which was preceded by an extremely hyped-up sermon asking questions like, don't you want to be married to Jesus? You know this system. Today it is referred to as the invitation system. Most of you know it as the altar call. Here all the goods of heaven are promised in exchange for a prayer a sinner's prayer. Well, I reckon I might have expected to be introduced to someone who had a great gift of persuasion solely meted out through the words of love and, and encouragement. After all, the Apostle Paul in his day had already discerned the signs of the times when he wrote, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is to say, they will not agree with Paul when he wrote that scripture is not only for teaching and training, but also for corruption and reproof. So surely, surely then, God's greatest man would understand the fallen human nature and would only speak in ways that would offend absolutely no one. So with that level of expectation in my mind, you can imagine how surprised I was the first time I read this passage that serves to give us a picture of how John the Baptist interacted with the crowds that he met. And this is not just one occasion. That which we're seeing in our text is not just speaking of one occasion. He's talking about crowds not a crowd, but crowds. These are the thousands of people that came out on different occasions. This passage then provides us with insight into what was typical for John. 
In the book of Matthew, it says that he was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here it says he was speaking to everyone. So here in effect, we see that there is something to be said about publicly rebuking folks whose service is publicly carried out in the eyes of everyone and being done so in the spirit of hypocrisy. John's ministry and calling was to pave the way for the Messiah. His heart was completely vested in that mission. And these folks represented the greatest hindrance to God, his God-established purpose, bringing about an atmosphere, that is, that was conducive to true repentance in the hearts of those who would know God. This was not about John being full of himself or John standing in arrogance or anything of that nature. This was a man who loved God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his strength. A man who understood that what was a stake for those who fell prey to the venom coming from those who claimed to be one thing, but in truth were something else, God's enemies. It was out of that understanding that we hear the words, you brood of vipers, you family of vipers. The word there, brood, also comes from the root word, which also speaks to generations. And so you generations, you've come, proceeded from generations of vipers, of snakes. And he's going at them. So let me ask you right up front, brothers and sisters. Do you get exercised when you see or hear people misleading others, preaching some sort of gospel that is not the gospel, telling people things that are, will lead them away from Christ. Do you get exercised? Listen to the question, this question posed by John Calvin in his commentary on this passage. He says, if John, the organ of the Holy Spirit, employs such severity of language in his opening address to those who voluntarily came to be baptized and to make a public profession of the gospel, how ought we to act towards the avowed enemies of Christ, who not only reject obstinately all that belongs to sound doctrine, but whose efforts to extinguish the name of Christ are violently maintained by fire and sword? These folks in our day, like the Pharisees and Sadducees of that day, are out here running interference for their father, the devil, and thus must be firmly called to abandon their hypocrisy and align themselves with the purpose to which John was called. That is to move his hearers by the power of the Spirit to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so now with that preface of John's introductory statement in mind, and for the purpose of us being on the same page, let me offer a definition of the word repentance. And then I'd like to spend the rest of our time in this passage learning what true godly repentance or fruits keeping with repentance looks like. For this is centrally what John is showing us here in this text. So first, a definition. Repentance is acknowledging one's sin turning away from it and turning to God 
any one of those elements missing and you're not repenting. It comes from the word repent, which means to change one's mind. Change one's mind how you ask. Well, here's how I'll answer that. The Westman, if the Westminster Confession of Faith, our Constitution, defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That is, if God says something, decrees something, desires something, and you go opposite of what he says, decrees, desires, or wills, then you have sinned. And to repent would mean to change your mind, align, and submit yourself to God. Submit your mind to God and then follow him both mentally and physically with every being, ounce of your being. Now notice then that everything that I've said so far indicates that action on one's part is central to a posture of true repentance. There's action behind it. That is to say there are do's and don'ts that indicate whether one has genuinely repented or not. So now with that definition in hand, I want us to look at what John would have us to know concerning this foundational aspect of salvation. For you see, brothers and sisters, there is no salvation outside of true repentance. True repentance is a sign of the Spirit's work of convicting one convicting us of our sin, of changing our hearts. If there is no repentance, there is no inworking of the Spirit at play. So the first thing we should see here then in our texts concerning genuine repentance is it does not. Repentance does not cling to external sources. Look at what John said to the crowds in verse 8. After telling them to produce works that give evidence of true repentance, he says, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Friends, we know from biblical and extra biblical sources that that's exactly what they were doing. They had a sense of ethnic pride that extended into a belief that they were God's treasure regardless of their behavior. They did not have to repent. They did not need to repent. They belonged to God and thus they were on the right side and in the, with the right destiny, regardless of any demonstration of faith on their part. They had no need, they believed, to repent. Today we have folks, which by the way would have made this even stranger because back then Gentiles were the ones that had to be baptized. Gentiles were the ones that were professing that they were turning to God. Jews did not have to be baptized. And here was this man calling them to be baptized, to recognize their need for forgiveness of sin, to repent of their ways. Today we have folks who in their heart of hearts believe that they are on their way to heaven because they're a member of a certain denomination or they're a member of a certain group because they come to church at a certain intervals and on and on. But when you examine their lives outside the doors of the church, examine their lives, when they walk away and they're living their lives, you do not see any true fruit of repentance. Friends, please hear me. Your affiliations, the church you attend, your denomination, how often you come to church, whether you grew up 
but under saved parents or, or with saved parents even now, none of those things will get you into heaven. And for those who want to hold on in this passage, for those who wanted to hold on to that notion, and for those who might be trying to hold on to that now, listen to what John said. John retorts, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. The same God that just took dirt and made Adam is able to take the stony hearts of others and make them his children. That same God. Notice it says God is able. He is the one that distills the grace, who gives the faith, and who is effectually bringing those to himself who belong to him. Here we should be reminded of Paul's words to the Romans. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham because they are his offsprings. These folks in our text would have done well to hear and to heed what John was saying. For in verse 9 he adds, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Brothers and sisters, listen. That is to say that the wrath of God stands at the door of your soul. And the only thing that will deliver you is Christ, who will respond to your genuine repentance. Here I'm reminded of another preacher who preached in the spirit and power of Elijah. This man would have probably been met with scorn in our day. I'm talking about Jonathan Edwards, a man whose ministry stands in stark contrast to the man I spoke about earlier who produced a system that leads to what's called easy believism. Jonathan Edwards penned a sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, there were 10 central considerations or premises. Among them were the following. God may cast wicked men into hell at any given moment. The wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any moment. He is saying these things and then flushing them out by showing throughout scripture how these things are there. The wicked on earth, the wicked at this moment suffer under God's condemnation to hell. The wicked on earth at this very moment suffer a sample of the torments of hell. The wicked must not think simply because they're not physically in hell that God in whose hand the wicked now reside is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those he is now tormenting in hell and who at this very moment feel and fear the fierceness of his wrath. You would be hard-pressed to hear a preacher saying these things to people with the forcefulness that he was in this passage in this day and age. Brothers and sisters, you get the idea? Edwards did not pull any punches in communicating the reality of the fate that awaited those who either rejected Christ or were hypocritically living before him. He, like John, was not politically correct. And what happened? His sermon became the catalyst of the first great awakening in these United States of America. Now listen to this portion of Reverend Stephen Williams' testimony 
concerning what he heard and saw during Edward's delivery of that sermon. Before the sermon was done, he said, there was a great moaning and crying out through the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And so forth. Brothers and sisters, why is it that we don't hear these questions today? And I'm not talking about this church. Prior to coming here and, and living in South Florida, I was up and down the East Coast in all sorts of different churches. Heard all sorts of things that you would not say would be gospel-centered per se. And none of this was being said. And none of these folks were saying these things. And no one was then truly walking out the doors and living for Christ. Why is it that we don't hear these questions today? Why is it that the adjective, the adjective that best describes Christians all over the land is lukewarm? Here in our passage, the people responded much like they did when Edwards preached. Look at verse 10. They ask, what then shall we do? John responds by continuing even more concisely to disclose the entrails of true repentance. It does not just say, Lord, Lord. And we should know that from Matthew 7, 21. Where many will say, Lord, Lord, and in the end he will say, get away from me. I never knew you. It does not just say, Jesus, I believe you. No, it takes up the mantle of good works, the good works that according to Ephesians, God prepared for us before the foundation of the world. It enjoins the purposes to which we were called, not just to make disciples, but to make, to, to love our neighbors of our, as ourselves, regardless of whether they're Christians or not. And so with that, John speaks to three groups. First, to everyone. Look at verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The person who truly professes Christ and endeavors to walk in Christ. John here is saying that saving faith in that respect, arrived at through the door of true repentance, causes the one who has to share with the one who lacks. Boaz, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, is a great example of this. Now, the one thing that I'd like to point out is, if you notice, Boaz was following God's word but the government was not forcing Boaz to give to those who lacked. Boaz was given because he was inclined to give because God said he should give. I want to stop here right quick and say if you think, and I might stray off a little bit into pop, but if you think that I am political, I would ask you to go look at R.C. Sproul's sermon on this same exact passage. R.C. Sproul was saying that it is wrong for the rich, for the poor to steal from the rich, and that here in the United States of America, we do it legally by having tax codes that do that. Let me move on. <laughs> but Boaz, again, is a great example 
The next group that came to him were the tax collectors asking, teacher, what shall we do? His answer, do not extort money from anyone with threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Brothers and sisters, anyone that's half following what's going on in our society today, particularly among those in leadership at every level of government in the United States, knows and keenly so how much folks need to hear what John is saying here. Do not extort money. I just mentioned what R.C. Sproul said, and that is something that's commonly happening in our environment. But lest we go and become those individuals who point fingers at everyone around us, please understand that John is speaking to those who claim to have a desire to follow God or claim to already be in a relationship with them. And notice he doesn't tell this tax collector, leave your job. Notice he didn't tell Zacchaeus to leave your job. He says, do the right thing. You know, Spike Lee, I'm not a Spike Lee fan, but Spike Lee had a movie named Do the Right Thing. And that always sticks out in my mind. Do the right thing. So he was telling the tax collector, do the right thing. Do not exact. I know that you've been privatized to collect taxes. And I know that you've been corruptly taken more than you should. But take that which is right, that which is just, and continue on in your job. Same with the soldier in verse 14. After asking what they should do, he responds, do not extort money from everyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Notice again that John did not tell them to quit their job. Being in the military is a noble profession. Being a police officer is a noble profession. They, according to Romans 13, are God's minister to punish evil and to promote good. But the fallen human nature is such that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here John is telling them, if you have truly repented, then you will operate in your calling the way God intended you. Anything less in practice, that is if you're going on practicing the opposite of what God has said, it is evidence of a questionable profession of faith. Now, brothers and sisters, know this, that although John limits his address to three specific areas or groups of individuals in verse 10 through 14, his intended reach is much broader than that. You see, what John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is communicating to every last one of us is this principle. Whatever sphere of influence you're in, do the right thing. And the right thing, again, is what God says is right. Anything opposite what God says is right is sin. And so that is to say you've confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now as the Apostle James would say, show me your faith by your works. If you have truly repented, if you have truly changed your mind and are now calling Christ Lord, that means he is a Lord over your life. That means that if he tells you to do something, you are called to do that. You're called to submit. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say Jesus said? And so if you 
are looking to bear fruits that give evidence of your repentance, then husband, why are we fighting with our wives when the Bible says, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church? Wife, why are we cutting up when the Bible says, submit to your husband as unto the Lord? Children, why are you running to and fro and don't want to go to bed at night? When the Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. No, this is all in the Lord, in the Lord, not outside the Lord, in the Lord. What does true repentance look like? What does true faith look like? Endeavoring to follow the Lord and repenting when we find ourselves not doing so. So if we find ourselves out of accord with the things that I just said, are we going before God and changing our mind about our behavior towards our spouse, about our behavior towards our parents, about our behavior, servants or in our day, workers, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Masters, or in our day, bosses, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Today we have many who are in governing authority at every level who claim to belong to Christ, but their walk begs to differ. The policies that we are seeing passed, state, federal, city level, say differently. Here John is dealing with two individuals who represent that sphere of influence. Today both the soldier and the tax collectors can be found at the state and federal level. Here, John is effectively engaging in what is known as prophetic criticism. And just so you understand, again, going back to what R.C. was railing on him in his sermon when he started talking about, you say not to get engaged in speaking about politics. But then he goes on, and I quoted some of the stuff to say. He quotes Alex Tocqueville, who stated, what will kill America is when the people realize that they can vote for themselves, largest for themselves. That is when they can ask the government to take someone else's property and give it to them. Then he goes on to say John's head, I'm, I'm skipping ahead, was cut off. John the Baptist's head, as we read further, was cut off because he, following a long list of prophets of God, was engaged in what we call in theology prophetic criticism. He had the audacity to publicly criticize the Tetrarch, the ruler of that territory, Herod, for his illicit marriage. And so John the Baptist, in a line of prophets, Moses going up to the government and saying, let God's people go, and on and on and on and on. The church is supposed to be the conscience of the other two sources of government that God established, the family and the civil government. And if the conscience of the family and the civil government is silenced, how then will they be informed? Who has the keys to, from the kingdom to inform the other spheres of governmental authority? And if we don't speak, 
Who then will they hear from? How will they hear from God? God has given us the keys. And so we should not look around in disgust when we see now the government telling parents that they have to respect their child's will to have their anatomy changed, even if they don't have their permission. And all the other things that are going on in our culture, where are we? Where is the prophetic criticism? Where's the self-examination and pointing fingers to ourselves and repenting and then engaging the culture for Christ? Where are we? Are we silent in the midst of all this? How do we engage the culture? They need Christ. They need, we need a third awakening. God is not done with us, but we won't be able to bring it about if the church remains behind closed doors. Close by saying this, R.C. in his sermon again, please go look at it. R.C. said, you know what? They, they, they talk about the separation of church and state, which can be found nowhere in the Constitution. But he says the government has no problem telling us what we should preach. They have no problem telling Christian institutions that they have to abort children. They have no problem saying all these things. But then, so the wall he was saying is a one-sided wall. Have you ever tried to climb up a one-sided wall? I've never even seen one. And so things, I would declare to you, have been flipped. But let me return to ourselves. God loves us. God wants us to follow him according to the dictates of his word. If we find ourselves out of accord with his word, we need to turn and repent. That is what John is all about here. Repent and walk in accordance with God's word, all to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that by your grace, we would not be amongst those whom John referred to as brood of vipers. Jesus himself did the same. We, are, we recognize that it is your grace, it is through and by your grace that we are saved. It is through and by the work of your spirit that we are called. But we also recognize the fallen nature and that we have a tendency to walk in our own way. We beg upon your mercy, therefore, that you would give us hearts of repentance to repent of all our sins. And fathers, there's any among us who have not called on your name, who have not turned to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way under heaven by which a man may be saved. If there's anyone among us who have not turned to him, we pray that they would have heard the words that have been spoken this morning and that you, by your mercies, will regenerate their hearts and gives them the unction to recognize who you are, recognize their sin, repent of it, and embrace that which you are offering them, salvation in and through Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.